Romans. Chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 16 through 17. We're going to read 1 through 17 here so we have our context. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. So Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. And he tells us why. Because he's called to this purpose. He's called as an apostle. He um, wants to strengthen the believers. He looks forward to sharing the gospel with them. And he wants to maybe even save more of non-believers who God may be calling to himself. He says, because it is the power of God for salvation. So as we too pray for these purposes, let's pray. Our most gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, write its precepts on our hearts, that you would bless the hearing and preaching of your word. And I am not um, sufficient to these things, for you've said even in your word, who is sufficient to these things? This this passage deserves a the grandeur of, of language it deserves the um, someone of, of eloquence and great learning and great depth of love and grace and mercy and faith to be able to proclaim these things well. But this is who we have today, me. And this is the congregation we have gathered, us. But we have your spirit. And by your spirit, we pray that you would bless the preaching, the hearing of your word, that you would help us to, weak and frail though we are, to hear the truth of what the gospel is and to experience its power, which is only from you, Father, as you sent your Son, Jesus, Lord, you came for us and you sent your spirit here with us today. We pray, O oh Holy Spirit, to bless us during this time in Christ's name. 
Amen. So, unashamed, I watch a TV show, the, the Duck Dynasty guys, every now and then I'll, I'll flip to it. They have a thing called Unashamed, and it's Phil, what's her last name? Robertson, good, I'm glad I'm not the only one who knows these people. And he, um, he says, it starts off, he says, I am unashamed. How about you? And so that's, this is what he's referencing here, though, is I am unashamed of the gospel. So, you know, if we're going to break this down, we have to first say, okay, what's the gospel? So in verse 1-1, he says, what's the gospel of God? And then 1-9, he says, it's the gospel of his son. So, okay, it means this is the good news, the proclamation of. This is the, the, the good news, the euangelion of God and his son. And what we're going to see is that this actually has power. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all at work in our salvation. So you have to make sure we don't fall into an error of thinking. God the Father is up there very angry at us. Jesus comes up with an idea to help Dad not be so mad at everybody. And then he comes, he does his work. The Father punishes Jesus instead. Now the Father's like, okay, I'm all right now. I won't, I won't bother these people anymore. Uh, it's not how it works. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundations of the world, according to the counsel of their will, um, decided to accomplish this great work. The Father desiring to give to the Son to people. The Son desiring to die for a people to present them to the Father to the glory of God. God glorifying His Son and the Holy Spirit accomplishing this great work in the hearts of the people, calling us by the power of God, by the power of the gospel. God the Father desiring our salvation. Jesus Christ, His Son, desiring our salvation. The Holy Spirit Christ, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit that is proceeds from the Father and the Son, desiring our salvation. If God be for you, who can be against you? If God has sent out to accomplish this purpose of calling a church, a bride, a people to himself, then Jesus Christ knows what he says when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Sheol, the gates of the dead shall not prevail against it. Ezekiel, cry out to these dead bones. Can these dry bones live? Oh, you know, O oh Lord, prophesy over the bones. And he did, and the sinews come together, and in some kind of, you know, in my mind, a bad CGI type or animation thing, these bones all start to come together into a living army. But when Ezekiel sees it, he sees it like it's really happening. When the preaching of the word of God is taking place according to the, the, the command of God himself, that is what is taking place. The power of God prophesying over the people. And for those who are in Christ, we are fed. So he gives us this sacrament to know that those who are united to Christ by faith, they receive the word, they receive God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who are not united to Christ by faith, they continue to listen to the condemnation that's theirs because they're not receiving the thing that's being proclaimed. And this is what Paul is saying. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so one of the things we're going to look at, too, is like you're going to have to ask the question, how about you? You know, I want to get ahead of myself, but I don't think anybody in here would say, yeah, I'm ashamed of the gospel, you know. But we're going to look at it, you know, how does that actually work itself out. But I want us to get a good grasp on what the gospel is. And Paul, throughout Romans, this is, this is his theological um, magnum opus, everybody calls it. This is, this is, the, this is the, the letter where he's explaining, after years of evangelism and living with the Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the things that are true about God, His grace, and the gospel. 
But we can, if you'll turn with me um, to another letter he wrote, the, the second letter to the, it's probably the third letter he wrote to the Corinthians, but the first and second are canonical. Um, we don't have that middle letter. Second Corinthians, didn't mean to create mental noise there. Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And uh, we're going to kind of come back here later in the sermon. So if you want, if you have a way to kind of mark 2 Corinthians and make it easier for you to get back to. And, um, and we are going back to Romans as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. He's talking about things. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction... And you might say, come on, Paul, you don't know my life. Well, then you don't know Paul's life. Paul's, Paul's been through it, okay? Paul's suffered, dead, come back to life. I mean, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been abused, he's been with all these things, and he's calling this a light momentary affliction. And what it's doing is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. They change, they move, they go away. But the things that are unseen, spiritual things that are real, they are eternal. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, he's talking about your bodies, in this tent we groan. Can I get an amen? Come on, we got enough older people in here to be able to say, yes, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. He's talking about what happens at our death. So that what is mortal, the stuff that can die, that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So one of my favorite verses for funerals, death is the mortal being swallowed by life. It's like when Jonah was swallowed by the great fish and he was spit out. We are being swallowed by life. And I guess you could say we're being, it's vomited out, actually, in the Hebrew, we're being vomited out in heaven. I mean, I don't know if that's the right way to, to put it, but this is the analogy. In our death, we are set free and we are given the eternal heavens. We've been swallowed by life when the believer dies. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we have the Holy Spirit as this guarantee, as a deposit. Like when you're selling a house and they put down the, uh, what's it called? They put down the earnest money. It's like this is kind of, this is his earnest. This is his like, I've given you this as a foretaste and as a stamp to tell you I am coming for you. So we are always, verse 6, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. 
if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, when you hear the all, you have to remember in Paul, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, not just one specific group of people, but, but all those who will come to him. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ in Christ, God reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. It's a lot of words. It's a lot of big stuff. Reconciliation is there is a problem between you and somebody else, and you can't work it out. So there is this great, vast problem between us and God that we deserve his wrath and curse. That's a pretty big problem. If God is against you, who can be for you? There is nothing. That's why God says his own strong right arm worked salvation for us. If God is after you, nobody is going to be able to help you but God himself. And so that is why we know in our salvation, God sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in order to accomplish reconciliation between us and God. Reconciliation. That means you go to the throne of grace. You, you have him for you. You're on good terms. You're on good speaking terms. You're loved by God now. This is the power of the gospel. Not counting their trespasses against them and in entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, I'm just going to read these next two verses. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So if you're reading this other part, then you're thinking, it sounds like God's saving everybody in the whole world. It sounds like God's reconciling every single person in the whole world. Well, if that's what he's doing, then there's no reason for Paul to say, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what he's saying is, this is available. This is what God has done in Christ. So we are imploring you, be reconciled, trust in Christ, turn to him, go to him, believe. This is the, the call of the gospel that goes to the world, and we have the obligation to share this gospel with the entire world, we too being ambassadors for Christ. When I was a, a child in the Baptist church, we go to a camp. I was in a group. They were called the Royal Ambassadors. It was a big thing in the Southern Baptist church, and uh, that's what it was about. We were to think of ourselves as believers, as royal ambassadors, which indeed is what the apostle Paul, we said that word really is good for apostle. You're sent on the power of somebody else. You're of high status, sent by somebody of even higher status, speaking on his behalf. So we do not take the name of Lord thy God in vain, but we speak his name. We understand the gospel as we brought it and preach it to ourselves so that it might be spilling over into the world and those around us, that the gospel might be on our lips and the good news of Jesus Christ shine through our lives so that if a believer decides not to believe it, they're going to have to turn from us and just shut us down somewhat or just overlook us as the world suppresses the knowledge of God in its sin. Verse 21, the great exchange. For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now we'll stop right there. He made him, and this is the gospel, so if you want to get a good grasp of it, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Who is this? Jesus Christ on the cross. He made him to be sin. Now, did Jesus Christ become sinful? It could be a bit of a trick question. It's like he didn't sin. He never committed a sin. Even on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not sinning. It's an honest cry because God is turning himself from his fatherly pleasure to fatherly displeasure and wrath that's due to us for sin so that he might drink this cup of wrath to the full. And he's quoting Psalm 22 when he does it. I don't know about you, but I know that I have, and I know most of you, if I know y'all well enough, I know you've been mad at God. I know you've been like, why has God this and why got that? And, but I don't know that even how often when we're mad at God are we quoting God to himself? <laughs> you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's a place of, of darkness or, you know, I'm walking through the valley of shadow of death. I fear no evil, but thou art with me. You know, show yourself to me. You know, crying out the words of God, crying out in faith, in times of darkness. And we don't always do that, but this is what happened. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. He sinned. So that, in Him, that means when you're a believer, you're no longer in Adam. You're transferred from that covenant into the new covenant, so you're not represented by Adam. You're not in Adam anymore. All the world, apart from Christ, is in Adam, born in Adam. This is why we baptize our children, because we recognize the need from birth for the saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so, as Jesus Christ is sin on the cross for our sake, so that in him we're able to get out of that covenant into the covenant of Christ, we're in Christ. And that's what all that means lots of things, but it just you're in that covenant. You it, everything Christ did, it's like you did it. You know, sometimes I've heard when people say, Well, it's not fair. Adam sinned and it gets credited to me. It's like, okay, Jesus committed only righteousness, that gets credited to you. You don't want that either? It's like it's good that there is this legal concept that's been set up in the world that we have a representative. The first one was Flawed, merely human, could not stand, would not stand. Any of us placed in Adam's place would have done the same or worse or quicker. But in Christ, he has done what we could never do, and we get credit for everything that he's done. His righteousness, his death, his resurrection, it's like we lived a perfect life. We get that. We're treated like that before the throne room of God in heaven. So, he becomes sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So becoming the righteousness of God, because righteousness of God is big in Romans 1, 16 and 17. So the righteousness of God. You do not become automatically like the matrix got zapped into you or something. All of a sudden, I walk around righteous. That my righteousness from God is a works righteousness now. It's just empowered by him. It's not how that works. In the same way that Jesus became sin without ever sinning, the believer becomes righteous, maybe without ever um, having an act of righteousness. And you might say, well, my work of faith, my calling on him, that was a work of righteousness. Was it really? Or is it not the gift of God, freely given? Lest anybody should boast about that being a work. Not a work. Chosen by God, 
being born by God from above, and now God sees you as righteous in the same way that he saw Jesus as sin on the cross. But then Jesus is raised again for, his just, for our justification, so that in Christ we are risen. And one day we'll be risen again. And so if we go back now to Romans, and he says, I am, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to y'all who are also in Rome because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So you just read, we just read all the Second Corinthians stuff. That's awesome. Why would anybody be ashamed of that? That's good news. That's crazy. This is it. Why would you be ashamed of this? In his letter to, first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So when that one verse, to those who are perishing, this is folly. This is foolishness. This is something for you to be ashamed of. But for us who are being saved, it's power of God. That's the same thing he's got going on right here in Romans. It's folly to the perishing, but to those who are being saved, this gospel, this is the power of God. So we are aware that these two things are set up. So how many of us become ashamed or embarrassed to speak the word of Christ in secular settings where those who, we are surrounded by those who are perishing? And they think the message of the cross is folly and foolishness. And on top of that, the messages that they're given, you know how we all get this fake news, we get these false narratives in movies and TV shows and all these things about reality. And it's like, man, you got to... As Ty said, real reality. You're about to you know, look around you and see what's going on in the world. The world has a very bad idea of the church through movies, um, TV shows. If you watch most movies and most TV shows, the Christian characters in it are not people that I want to associate necessarily. There's some good ones out there. I'm not saying them all. But typically the way the world depicts us is in the worst possible light. And then, unfortunately, some of the most upfront churches and ministries and pastors and things like that also depict the church in a way that I don't want to be associated with either. One of the, I was going to seminary, and I didn't think I was called to be a pastor. I knew I was called to seminary, and I wanted to be a youth director. I want to be a youth leader, maybe a college minister or something like this. And then some of the professors were asking me about, what about the pastorate? And I was, in my mind, I was like, I know preachers. I'm not one of them. I don't, and some of them are like, I don't want to be one of them. I, and my thing, my problem was, I didn't want people to think of me the way a lot of pastors are thought of. Sometimes it's the fault of the pastors, and sometimes it's the fault of the world giving the world this terrible idea of what it means to be a pastor. And so what we have to recognize is we walk by faith, not by sight. So when you're in a setting that is almost or at least even if there's a lot of Christians there, but the culture is controlled by this secularism where it's a foolishness, you're going to, have to, you're going to shine brighter. And so as Martin Luther, well, it's been, you're going to have to, the world will either do something to make you a little dimmer or you're going to have to do something to make yourself a little dimmer so you don't draw attention to yourself. And so what we do is we shut up and we're quiet. We keep ourselves in the corner. Keep your Bible just on your phone so people can't see it. Don't proclaim the gospel too much because we all know that guy that just does it in a way that's just 
over the top, and it's like, you know, at least he's doing it, I guess. But you're not that guy. Be who you are in Christ. Be the gospel that you know is the gospel. Share the gospel. You don't have to always at your job or in the workplace, wherever you are, you don't always have to be like the insurance salesman. Well, that, this, the insurance salesman. My father sold life insurance. I'm not opposed to life insurance salesman. But, you know, there's this little caricature of them. And what's the movie? Groundhog Day. And one of the first things, this guy's coming to sell him life insurance. He's like, oh, you know, it's like every day he's got to go through this life insurance guy, life insurance guy. And um, you don't want to be like that guy that's always trying to sell the same people the same thing with the same pitch, and they've already said no. But here I am again, and here I am again. So what we do as believers, you got to make sure people have at least heard it, that they at least know where you stand and why you do the things you do. And when they see your life, they see the light of God shining through the things you do and give glory to God. And they'll see all the imperfections because we have this power in jars of clay to show the power is not from us, but from God. So if you're trying to share your light and the gospel before the world, don't think you have to be Jesus. Don't think you have to be perfect. Don't think you have to be, you know, it's, it is a hindrance to my ministry for people to think that I'm the pastor and therefore I'm some sort of an icon or something. I'm some sort of a perfect person. I mean, if people know me long enough, you're like, I don't, John, I don't think anybody thinks that. Fair enough and good, because what ends up happening is, one, I'm set to too high of a standard by people, and then people set themselves at too low of a standard. We are called to holiness. We're called to Christ-likeness. We're called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we go. Do everything you do to the glory of God so that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You're going to fail. Then apologize. Point out the fact when people accuse you of being hypocritical that you go, I know. I'm just glad I'm, I'm, I'm saved from that too because I don't like that. I don't want to be like that. I apologize. So you're quick to apologize. Get what I'm saying. That we live before a watching world and the world is watching and they're ready to see every mistake as proof positive that your God is not real and your gospel is false. And if you carry that burden into the world of having to perfectly represent Jesus Christ in such a way that the world might believe then you're not living in the power of God and the salvation. The gospel is the power of God, not your testimony. Nothing wrong with you giving a testimony, but that is not the power of God and the salvation. The power of God and salvation is what Paul says it is here, the gospel, the good news. I don't know what kind of testimony you have. Good. There's a Tim Hawkins joke he tells about he's going to go on stage and he's going to, He's a Christian comedian. He says, I'm going to go on this play, you know, church, and everybody's giving their testimony, and this guy gets up there, and you know, he's like, man, you know, I was a crack addict. You know, I'd fallen. I was almost dead, and I was in a ditch, and I was just gone. And there was nothing. And then God saved me, and look at me, and I'm perfect, and I'm great, and I'm, and I'm doing good because of the gospel. And then Tim Hawkins says, I'm up next, and he's walking out going, wish I was a crack addict. <laughs> you know, I got nothing. I didn't do these things. I even listened to an evangelist not too long ago, and he was speaking. I was watching a video of it, and he said, um, um, I never, he says, I grew up, he says, I never, I never partied, I never drank, I never got into these problems, I never did these things. <laughs> My first thought was, then you can't relate to me. Didn't mean to give too much away. But I'm like, you know, how, how do you relate to sinners? And we just heard a sermon at Presbytery from Ligon Duncan, and he says, what about Jesus? He was perfect in every way. How does he relate? And yet we have a high priest in Jesus Christ who is not unable to sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. 
Because Jesus came on a rescue mission for us while we were yet sinners. He came to save us as sinners. So when he comes down here, and Ligon Duncan was saying this, so when Jesus shows up walking around the world, he looks around and he doesn't go, oh my, I had no idea how awful these people are. Are you sure this is what you want to do? I didn't, I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. Jesus is like, I came because these people have no idea. You forgive them, they know not what they do. And not just talking about the people who are crucifying him, but the, the depravity of our sin as Jesus is crying, praying for the people, for us. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We know not how bad our sin is. But the power of God is what Jesus did on the cross so that in Christ we become the righteousness of God in him. But salvation is also us being given this deposit of the Holy Spirit. It's being born again. So why do we do good works? What's our motivation? You know, it's like, so if you're an actor in a movie, you know, you might ask the director, hey, what's my motivation for this character? You know, and we might say, uh, you're going to do good as a Christian because you're thankful to God for it. Okay, that's good. You know, you're going to do because you remember what it was like to live bad and you want to live good. Good. But when it comes down to it, you're never going to be thankful enough. You're never going to have a desire just to do things better because it's good for you. I mean, how many times a day do you tell yourself to do something and you don't even listen to yourself? Don't eat that, don't eat that, but why am I eating it? You know, things like that. You don't even listen to yourself. But we have this thing being set up within us that is fed by the, the listening to the preaching of the gospel, the reading of his word, the practicing of sacraments, the observance and practice of baptism, fellowship with believers, prayer, all these things, the means of grace in the gospel so that the Holy Spirit is given more and more to us so that we do indeed die more and more to sin, live more and more to righteousness so that we're just being transformed in the inner man that's just like, why do you eat vanilla ice cream? You know, it ain't hard. <laughs> you know, I like it. And so as you become transformed into the likeness and image of Christ, you do things that are pleasing to him in the, you know, these particular things we begin to do, living the righteousness, dying to sin, because we're being transformed. I, my desires are changing. And so you should look at yourself and say, I'm not sure my desires are changing enough for me to be able to claim Christ. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. He died for you for your sins. You've been forgiven. You're set free. You are in Christ. And he is at work within you, the power of God unto salvation. So that when you fail, when you fall, when you recognize the fact that cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are, then God's grace is far greater than you ever imagined. The distance between us and him is greater than you could possibly imagine And what he did on the cross. I mean, he's able to give himself to us by his spirit in this meal. It's the covenant. He's giving himself to us in the preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel. Faith, he says in 10.17 in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Holy Spirit brings people to life. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It is the work of God from beginning to end. He is the, the, the author and finisher of our faith. But it comes through the preaching and hearing of the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So we have to make sure that we are not ashamed of these things. The power of God for salvation. Rome personified power. Sinclair Ferguson gives this uh, analogy. He says, it's like when you play that game where you say, I'm going to say a word, and you say the first thing that comes into your mind. Um, and I wrote down a few. It's fun, you know, fishing. Who knows what might come to your mind? You know, wet, water. If you said to somebody living during 
uh, Paul's time, you said power. They'd say Rome without a thought because there's this great power of Rome. The Roman soldiers were feared everywhere. There was the Pax Romana, the, the, the peace, the Roman peace throughout the world. It was awesome. It was one of the reasons the gospel was able to go so far because you could travel on roads. You could go. There was this peace, but it was a peace because of the fear of the power of the empire. You know, Darth Vader has a great line, don't be too proud of this technological terror you've created. You know, it's nothing compared to the power of, and he says, the force. But this is what Paul is saying. It's nothing compared to the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. You're here, Paul, telling us in Rome, this is why he's thanking God for this faith in Rome, this power, this empirical empire, power in the world that people just know that you cannot stand against Rome. And Paul's like, I'm proclaiming a power greater than that power. And then the question is, you know, are you going to obey the law and say Caesar is Lord? And that was a big thing. People being martyred because they would not say these things. I cannot say Caesar is Lord. He is not God. And this is what he's proclaiming. So he's saying, I am not ashamed of this greater power. And they would yell out, ridiculous, foolishness, folly. Perhaps the church in Rome felt a little weak and afraid in the light of this great power. Paul says, I am not ashamed. Perhaps he's putting the emphasis on that word. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It has to make them think maybe, you know, are you guys ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of salvation from the wrath of God that was due to us. It saves us to a new life in Christ. We were powerless. And there are still people in their sin. You're powerless against it. You must be born again from above by the power of the Holy Spirit through the hearing of the preaching of the word of Christ and believing. Believing is a necessary component. For the gospel is the power of God for, you see here, all who believe. Belief is an active trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. It's not just mental agreement. It's also a heart agreement. But it is knowing who it is whom I believe and trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. Completely and totally and loving him. So you have to ask yourself, do you know him? Do you love him? Apart from God working in us through Christ, we are powerless to believe. We are powerless to do truly righteous works because without faith it's impossible to please God. But even if we could do some purely righteous deed, even if we could do a bunch of them, they could never cancel out our sin. So we need a Savior. There is nothing we could do. I don't know if I mentioned points. First point was not ashamed of the gospel. Second is the power of, the, of God for salvation. Third is the gospel is the power of God for all, for everyone who believe the Jew first, but also for the Greek. So Greek means Gentiles, all non-Jewish people. The Jews were God's chosen people, were entrusted with the oracles of God, yet um, even they needed faith in Christ. Paul goes right to Habakkuk in a minute saying same principle in the Old Testament. Saved by faith in the Old Testament, saved by faith in the New Testament. Faith in the Christ to come. Faith in the Christ who has come. But Paul is saying that salvation is now available equally to Jew and to Gentile. When Paul would go into a new place, he'd first go to synagogues. And then he would typically not have a good reception Many Jews were being saved, but on the whole, there was not a good reception. And so Paul was sent to the Gentiles. And then he would say, 
Salvation is available to all who believe so that anyone who believes will be saved. It's very important to our faith. We understand election. We understand predestination. We understand all these things, and yet the call of the gospel is a real call of the gospel to anyone who believes. Anyone who believes will be saved. The call is to believe. Problem is, it's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Good news is, power of the gospel is in this. Preach the gospel. You don't know who God's saving. You don't know what God's at work. We pray. God works through our prayers in amazing, mysterious ways. God works through the preaching of his word in amazing, mysterious ways. But if you're praying for people to be saved, if you're praying for revival, then preach the gospel to yourself and be revived. Preach the gospel to others and pray for great salvation to take place because Calvinists typically have been the greatest um, evangelists going into the world because they know God's at work in this. I don't have to convince people of it. I just proclaim the gospel and God's saving people. One of the, it, it's, it can be discouraging in our country, in our area, as you go and you share the gospel with people. And it's like, as Billy Graham said, for a great part, they've been inoculated to it already. They've, they got a little bit of it enough so they don't have to get any more of it. And, and people have heard it. But there's still people here that God is saving. So when you go to Haiti, it's just like, the fruit, I, I remember just praying before we did these um, trips to Haiti, just praying, I just want to see the gospel truly convert somebody. I know we've all been converted. A lot of us have grown up in the church, never had a time when we don't know Christ. But don't you just want to see people come from darkness into light from the preaching of the gospel? And to be able to go, you don't know what I was like before. I tell you what, you go to somebody that used to be a voodoo priest or priestess or somebody who worshipped at this, and I mean literally darkness, where you see pictures of these people and it's like, it's something from a horror movie and then you see them when they stand in front of you and you're like, I'd let you babysit my child. That's a transformation in Jesus Christ and they give all the glory to Christ. Our problem is it's not dark enough yet for us here. I think God worked on it a little bit here, you know, but it's like we have to be aware that the world the, the world has been blinded by the God of this world to keep them from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. There's a veil. And what we see here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, Jew first, also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. Guess what word that is? We were just in the whole book. Apocalypto, apocalypse, revelation. This is an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain, an uncovering of something. But it's more than that. It is actually the righteousness of God coming into the world and effecting salvation for people. And you can't preach this text without mentioning Martin Luther. I think if you listen to anybody preach this, they ought to be mentioning Martin Luther in the 16th century monk who started basically the Protestant Reformation. He was translating this passage from Greek. It had only been before read in Latin. So when you read this in Latin, as the church would read the, the, the Latin translation, it would say the righteousness of God is the eutychia, the, the justice of God. And that's not bad translation, but you know, when you read the justice of God, that's like, it belongs to him. His righteousness, God's righteousness. And Martin Luther was like, that's not good news. I have a God who will judge. I have a God who judge in righteousness. I am a sinner. I mean, Paul, I mean, Martin Luther understood his depravity. Um, he was like, I am not good enough. I cannot do this. And he would have this love-hate relationship with God. He's this righteous God who demands righteousness that Martin Luther knew he could never attain. He was like, I'm not sure 
how to even do that. So he joined the Augustinian monks who were the, the harshest monks that he could join because he wanted to do it. He, he, he's like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it as harshly as I can. I'm going to dig in and try to please God in some way. And he knew he could never do it. And so as an Augustinian monk, he had some the translations of, from Greek. And he's like, I'm going to translate from Greek into German. And he translates this and he realized that word's not the justice belonging to God, the righteousness belonging to God, it's the righteousness that God gives to us. He's like, wait a second, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that's accredited to us from God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, it's given to us. This righteousness is given to us. And Martin Luther writes in one of his books, in a preface, I believe it is, he said that, um, oh, where did I write it? He said, it is as if the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. That's the gospel. The doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Do you hear in the gospel, the doors of paradiso? Today you'll be with me in paradise. The garden of the king, the king garden of God, heaven. Paradise is opened up because you realize you are not good enough. You would never be good enough. Your works are like filthy rags before righteous and holy God. But what he does in his grace and mercy, because he is righteous, and when he saves us, it takes the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf so that he takes fully the wrath due to us so that we're, we're given God's righteousness. Everything required of you in heaven. When you stand before God and you go to walk through the doors of heaven and he says to you, why shall I let you in? Jesus Christ. Paid for my sin. I am clothed in his righteousness. Ain't nobody going to ask you that question because you're going to be all shiny and bright and it's going to be obvious because you were clothed in his righteousness. You are now clothed in his righteousness. You just can't see it. And we're called to die more to the self and live more to righteousness to Christ because as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. This is how you're going to live. By faith, not by works, by faith. It'll produce works. And as soon as you start saying, look how awesome I am, look how awesome I am, you know, that's, you've, you've lost the gospel. So cling to this gospel. Do we understand the power of the gospel? Jesus dying for us because he became a curse for you. Do you understand the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the power of God for salvation? You have but to believe in your heart and call upon his name. And faith is a gift freely given, lest anyone should boast. So therefore, his power is at work in you as a believer. Work out that salvation. It's an outworking. Because he's done an inworking. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel power of God into salvation, revealed from faith for faith. It's all about faith from beginning to end. Faith in you and what you've done for us. And we believe in the transforming power of that and the power of that message to save. Help, it, help us to not be ashamed of the gospel, understanding that it is your power under salvation. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.